you don't have to necessarily have the Ivy League degree or work at one of the top investment banks, but what is it in your own life that you feel confident about? I mean, your even experience or uh, your background or your connections or whatever it is that you know you can lean on a little bit more. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Rayham Figiri, to our show today. Rayham is the founder and CEO of AppDeco, an online marketplace that eliminates the hassle of buying and selling furniture. Rayham always knew she wanted to build something, but never knew exactly what it would be. The idea for AppDeco came to Rayham after she finished business school at Warden and was preparing to move to New York. Desperate to sell her furniture, she used Craigslist and was met with so many interesting things from strangers coming to her house to heavy negotiations, last minute cancellations, and even moments that compromised her safety. When speaking to her former classmates, she realized so many of them were also dealing with the same frustrations. Although she accepted a job with another startup, Rayhan became obsessed with the idea of creating a better platform to buy and sell furniture. Fast forward to today, Abdeco has morphed from a scrappy team poaching furniture sales from Craigslist to now being a leading marketplace that provides a seamless experience from buying to selling to delivery of furniture. We talked to Rayhan about how she got the idea off the ground with very little money, some of the hurdles she hit when it came to scaling her now multi-million dollar business, how to really engage with your customers and create a trusted brand that people truly want, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Rayham. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm a big fan of your business. I can't wait for you guys to come to LA. I'll be the number one supporter because I'm in the middle of a move and I'm like, can AppDeco please come because you can make my life much easier. So hopefully soon. Very soon, actually. <laughs> Very soon. <laughs> I'm excited. Well, I'm excited for our listeners to learn more about you. I love your background, your entrepreneurial story, and really how you've scaled the business to this date. So on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. So I'd love to learn more about your childhood. I know you grew up in Sudan where the economy is really built on small businesses. So you grew up with your father being an entrepreneur, your aunt being an entrepreneur. So I'd love to hear more about your upbringing and how you think it's really impacted you know, your mentality and the woman that you are today? They really had such a huge impact. Um, so my entire family essentially are entrepreneurs. So um, whether women or men, so a lot of my aunts have their own businesses, um, uh, you know, from architecture firms to even, or even just being university professors, obviously it's not entrepreneurship, but my father and a lot of the men in my family also have, you know, some sort of business. A lot of it is engineering related. I think just yeah. by virtue of being, um, I think, you know, sort of like developing quote unquote countries, I think the love of STEM is so big there, right? So it's like, you have yeah. to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer, <laughs> maybe a lawyer actually, yeah. <laughs> engineer or a doctor. So I think it's kind of by virtue of that. So it has such a huge impact. And, you know, this is what I've seen growing up um, is the norm. Um, and so I've always thought, like, even if I remember from a very young age, I've always thought about um, building something. I just didn't know what. Uh, but it's something I remember even in my childhood, like, oh, like, what if I do this? What if I do that? Like, I've always been sort of tinkering around ideas from a very young age. 
Yeah. And it's interesting to see, and we'll jump into this in a bit, just your trajectory, working in the corporate environment and transitioning to entrepreneurship. But I know you moved to the U.S. for undergrad and you actually ended up working at Goldman in New York for about six years, right? You were developing software for investment bankers and traders. So I'm sure your family and yourself, you know, that's a very reputable job. I'm sure they were very proud of you. What was it about that job that you decided, you know what, this might not be it and really pushed you to go to business school? Well, actually, a random tidbit, but uh, my parents didn't really know what Goldman was. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I had I to that. so I had to explain to them how big of a, how big deal it was. But like, okay, you know, they knew about you know Apple or Intel or you know like those type a of tech company type of tech <laughs> companies, but not Goldman. Uh, but you know, when I left, they were like, "Oh, you sure you want to leave Goldman? Now it's such a big deal." <laughs> Why yeah, yeah. When they finally got it, it right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean. I decided to leave Goldman because, I mean, I was moving really fast up the career ladder there and I had an incredible experience. I definitely was drinking the Goldman Kool-Aid as they, as they say, um, very, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Um, But for me was, you know, I was hungry for more, but I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. So I knew I wanted to do something different. Um, And actually, honestly, just to be honest with you, the, you know, working at Goldman in tech, in particular, um, it's kind of considered quote unquote back office, which essentially is like, you know, you're building applications for someone else to use traders or bankers. Um, It's not the core business for the firm. And what I really wanted to do is be the front and center of wherever I end up. Um, And so business school was a really good place. You know, I thought it would be a good place to explore what to do next. And I really didn't think I was going to end up in tech. I thought I'd be doing something very different. Yeah. And I know you've talked about in another interview where you thought you were going to leave tech. And then when you went to business school, it was like the hot thing and everybody was asking you. So what, how was your mentality around, you know, going into business school, not wanting to be into tech into graduating because you ended up about to work at a startup and we'll get into that, but yeah. how did your mentality change? I mean, I think it was, you know, that's the great thing about business school. So it is all about learning from each other. So the network is such a big part of business school. So, you know, as I was talking to a lot of my classmates about their careers and what they, you know, the bankers and the consultants and people working in retail, um, and everybody was picking my brain about tech and how do you become a product manager and how do you join a tech company and how do you, you know, how do you just, how do you do that? And, you know, it was really just telling at the time that uh, tech has become, it was still not the hot new thing. It was still sort of, you know, some people were really interested in it, but banking and consulting were still a really big part of the graduating class. Uh, but it really um, helped me sort of take a step back and, and recognize that I could be front and center in a tech mm-hmm. company, right? So I think what I, the reason why I didn't want to do tech was because I felt like it was a support function. And, um, and business school helped me reveal that I could be in tech but still be building a product that everyone would use and it would be front and center and like the core functionality and core business for the company. I love that because I, I'm a huge proponent of just having exposure to different things. So you got that in business school and you were realizing, oh, I can do tech and be core to a business versus back office. So I think, you know, listening to podcasts like this or just learning about different aspects of different industries, there's so much potential out there. So I love to hear how that even shifted your mindset around tech and business school and just talking to others and being exposed to different things. I mean, it's exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's shifted 
my mindset. And I think just being exposed to different people from different backgrounds too, right? So, I mean, that's the beauty of business school. It's not for everyone, but the beauty of business school is, you know, it's the one place where you literally have people from all kinds of walks of lives, countries, um, and also backgrounds, like professional backgrounds. You know, you have the engineers and you have the business people and you have the hedge funds and you have the entrepreneurs and all type of people from different and politicians, excuse me. Um, and so it was just a great place to explore and learn. You definitely took advantage of it in the right way. So I know you graduated business school, you secured a great job at a startup. So what you wanted, I'd love to hear more about your move to New York, because really that was the early days of the idea for your startup. So can you share more about your move from business school and going back to New York? Yeah, sure. So when I was leaving business school, um, I, you know, and I, you'd mentioned I had a job waiting for me in New York. I was looking to, um, you know, I started packing and move, and packing my stuff and purging some stuff. And, um, and I had some really great brands of furniture that I, you know, that I just didn't feel right to dispose just like put in the street, you know, just, I felt, it felt irresponsible to do that. And at the same time, they were expensive uh, to move. So I'm like, well, let me see if I can just like list them somewhere and try to sell them and make some money. But at the same time, you know, really it help kind of like from a being a responsible person in for the environment. Um, and so that was really the beginning, right? So I listed my furniture on Craigslist and, um, and had a, had some pretty interesting experience. And I'm sure, you know, I can share more about that. But, uh, but that was really the genesis. So, you know, packed up myself after business school, um, you know, and also the other interesting thing that I found and sort of like when the idea started brewing was around all my classmates were complaining about the same thing. So in, in Philadelphia and Wharton, most people end up leaving. So some people stay in Philadelphia, but most people in the class of 800 end up moving after business school to, you know, whatever respective cities they end up in. And everyone had to get rid of their furniture. So there's a ton of people at the same time trying to get rid of their furniture. And it shouldn't be a hot topic during graduation, but it was. Everybody's like, what did you do with your furniture? Um, So, you know, I had those terrible experiences and everybody seemed to have like this frustration with what to do when they're moving. And so that was really, you know, uh, kind of an aha moment for me. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about some of the interesting stories and experiences because I resonate a lot with that. I'd love for you to share, you know, because I think it's also a huge value proposition of why App Deco came to life and what resonates with a lot of customers, especially oh, women. Yeah, exactly. Especially women. I have so many stories. And I think especially as a, you know, at the time I was a single woman living by myself in, an, in my, you know, in my own apartment, um, you know, like it really struck a chord with me, the experiences that I had. So, you know, for example, I had this one woman who, a really sweet lady who bought my bed. It was a West Elm bed. And, you know, right after she bought it and gave me the money, she asked me to do her favor and help her lug it down the stairs and unpack it up and put it in her. It was a tiny car too. So the whole thing was just like, oh man, this, you know, it was already hard enough to sell it. So like now I have to deal with you know, helping her lug it down the stairs. And thankfully it was a elevator building, but it's still not easy. You know, it was still not easy. And it was a bed, it was like so many different pieces. You know, I was reluctant, but I helped her out. Um, and I was happy to help her out at the time. But, you know, it was just like, this, this, this sucks, right? So this is one example. The one that really, you know, the one that was for, for me was like, I think a turning point was um, when I had this 
gentleman come into my apartment, um, you know, came to buy my TV and he let me know that the TV I listed was actually the wrong model. And he got really upset. And so I was alone in the apartment by myself and he got really upset. And he's like, you know, why did you misrepresent it? And, you know, you, you know, you should take the time to find the right information and and I kid you not it was essentially it's exactly the same brand it was like just one model different but you know it was just an honest mistake but you know he essentially was told me that he's just going to take it and he's going to pay what he feels is fair and you know he was sort of very very upset so for me at that point I was felt so vulnerable in my own apartment and um and you know as a single woman living by myself I'm just like this this could have turned in a very different direction, very easily. And, you know, this should not ever happen to anyone. And I wanted to do something about it so that it never happens again to anyone. And that's why, you know, that really helped me and inspired me to, to start Abdeka. I wanted to create a solution, not just for me, but for every, really every woman out there. Yeah, no, it definitely resonates with me. I've probably moved over five times when I was single and every time there'd be somebody coming in, I'd always beg my friends, like, can you just please stay with me? And they would walk in and not buy the furniture. And it was just such a hassle to maneuver times that worked for my friends where I felt safe. Cause I'm very paranoid about any, you know, stranger walking to my house when you're alone and you're, right. you know, a young woman, but so you had this idea, you know, you secured this job in New York. My question for you is, you know, were you, I know you ended up testing the idea for a bit, but did you accept the job and do this on the side? I mean, what are those early days of you validating this idea that was brewing in your head look like? Yeah. So I accepted the job and I was, you know, preparing to move, but my start date was late, like later in the year. So that was the other thing that I tried to do was negotiate a later start date. Um, and this is before, you know, I got the job before I even got this, came up with this idea. Um, and I accepted the job before I came up with this idea. And, but I had, I think a six months or eight months um, before I was supposed to start my job. It was sort of the beauty of negotiating during business school. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of, a lot of friends that also were starting later. And so we were all just hanging out in New York, but you know, that was, has started that has negotiated, had uh, accepted the job, has, we were preparing to move to New York, was looking for an apartment in New York, was deciding what to move and not to move with me to back to New York. And, um, and when I was there all during that time, you know, I had all this free time before I was supposed to start my job, I just could not stop thinking about this problem. I could not stop thinking about it. And I just kept on brainstorming, brainstorming solutions. And, you know, to the point where as an, as an engineer, I was, I'm like, well, let me see if I can just build a few things here and there. Like it was just sort of like just playing around to, you know, to, to, um, to see what I, what could happen. And it sort of took a life of, of its own. Yeah. So I know, you know, you're obsessed with this idea. You have a few months where you're kind of chilling in the city before you start your job. And what I love about you and how you started the business is you talk a lot about, you know, MVP, minimum viable product, which I think is really helpful for anyone who's looking to start a business today. You know, before you spend all this money on an idea, I'd love to hear about how you, you know, kind of were very scrappy in the beginning just to test. Is this something that people even want? Oh, MVP is the most important part of starting anything. So, you know, it's what we, what I did in the beginning was um, just test things out on Craigslist. I would literally like copy listings. So people who have posted, you know, some, some of things are not necessarily kosher, but you do what you got to do to figure things out. Um, 
And it's like, it's total hundred percent hacking. So I would copy yeah. some listings. I would um, list them again and say with delivery. Cause the concept for me from the beginning was, well, I've experienced this friction. So the friction was, you know, of course, having to lug, help this woman lug this piece of this bed down some stairs and, you know, load it up in her car or having this weird interaction with a complete stranger in my apartment. And so my whole thought from the beginning was, well, if you can create a platform where one, delivery is automatically included, two, it's a trusted community so people can trust who they're buying and selling from and eliminate the need for like this cash negotiation and everything is done online, it should be a no brainer. So this was my hypothesis. And so I wanted to test if it's true or not before I go off and build this, you know, fancy platform. And so what I did was let me, well, first I was like, okay, let me test if people are excited about the delivery aspect, which I thought it was such a, you know, such a big part of it. So that's why I went on Craigslist and I would list my furniture, list some furniture, you know, really fake listings and say with delivery. And then I would compare um, the listings that don't include delivery to the listings that include delivery, how people reacted, what their response rates were, you know, really collected as much data as possible. Um, I couldn't really sell the furniture because it's fake, right? Yeah. It's fake listings, but it really helped sort of give me um, early data points that, you know, okay, this actually works. People do care about delivery. And what I saw immediately was there were no negotiation. You know, people would respond to the listing that say with delivery included. And they're like, hey, I want to come right now and I'll buy it from you. You know, versus the listing that didn't include delivery, like, hey, will you take a hundred? Something that's I'm listing for 500. There's a lot of more back and forth. So that was definitely like helped validate the first sort of hypothesis. Then I did some other things like I listed, um, I actually know I created a um, just a landing page um, and there, there are a lot of tools. I can't remember the name now. There's a lot of places you can go and just literally just buy it, you know, get, buy the domain or like, it, it doesn't even have to be a real domain and say coming soon, the easiest way to buy and sell furniture. That's what I did. And I paid for a Google ad. I think I spent like a hundred dollars to see how many people would sign up for this just one page that says nothing except for buying and selling furniture with delivery included, something like that. And, you know, I think in like an hour I had thousands and thousands. Are you serious? Their email. Yes. Wow. Yes. And so I'm like, okay, well, a lot of people really want this. It's not just me. It's not just like my idea. And, you know, people, people are willing to give me their email. Um, and, you know, I thought that was like a, a good indicator that is something worth pursuing further. Yeah. And I think, especially in those very early days, when you have an idea, really building that confidence in yourself that this is what other people want, you know, outside of you, I think makes the transition a little bit easier. Uh, I know, I know at least that's what I felt in my life when I made the transition. But so at that moment, you know, you're validating in these scrappy ways, which I love. And I think there's a lot of takeaways our listeners can take from that. So I know you also, I believe at the time we're working alongside Kalam, am I saying his name correctly yes. or co-founder? Yes. So how did you guys get connected and you know, how did he kind of join forces with you on this idea? Yeah, so Kalam so Kalam or Kalam uh, and I, we known each other for a very, very, very long time. Um, and you know, we had met, we had met in New York when I was working at Goldman and he was at the time working at L'Oreal and we've, you know, became friends and stayed friends. And, um, and we had, I had actually, before I started this company, I was working at Goldman. I had a, 
a small sort of side nonprofit that I was, I was working on, um, sort of like a, as feel good to like help, help give back. I felt kind of guilty about working such a big investment bank and, you know, kind of like just sort of personal reasons, but helped me, um, you know, we were raising money on behalf of nonprofits, mostly focused in Africa. And we had raised a ton of money for a bunch of nonprofits and very proud, you know, of what we were able to accomplish with that nonprofit. But I, you know, one of the things that we did early on was look for sponsors. And so he was a friend of mine. So I'd reach out to him around sponsorship um, with L'Oreal. And so we were able to get some simple like products, free giveaways and things like that. But, you know, we had like a kind of a really nice working relationship um, early on. And fast forward when I was leaving business school and I remember I was just like texting him, telling him like this, I was just going through this experience and like, this is horrible. And he relayed to me something similar that happened to him. He was trying to sell a, a couch around the same time, give or take, you know, one to two months. And he um, and, you know, people were just flaking. Of course, he's a big, bulky guy. Like, you know, he's not worried about his safety. It was never about safety for him. But he's like, I'm trying to sell this couch. It's really nice. It's in great condition. And people will say like, hey, I'm coming today. And they don't never show up. Or they'll, you know, like it's, I think he was trying to sell it for $500 and people were like, oh, can you take, will you take 50, you know? And so it was such a frustrating experience for him. And, you know, I had just moved back to the city and I had still, I had a U-Haul, a small U-Haul. So he had asked me to borrow it. And that day and say, he's like, I just want to really get rid of this. You know, can I, you know, I I had just finished like unpacking my furniture um, from the U-Haul. So he relisted his Craigslist post saying like with delivery yes, (laughs) and immediately I kid you not I wish I was making this up immediately someone came gave him full price wow for that sofa and then he helped him lug it down and put it in the U-Haul and deliver it to wherever it was going but you know like again I had already been thinking about this and I was thinking about like validating you know this delivery concept and then he was experiencing this and so we kept on sort of exchanging notes and when that happened, it was just like, okay, we got to do this. We got to just stop what we're doing and do this. This is a no brainer. Yeah. And I know at that time, I mean, he stayed on, I know he had a, a corporate job at L'Oreal was doing very well for himself and he stayed at that job for a little bit longer than you. So I'm curious, you know, you're the one that went all in, didn't take that startup job. Did you have any fears around that? I mean, how was that experience for you to just go all into this idea that you and your co-founder came across? I I mean, I would say, yes, I had fears, but at the same time, you know, I think the, and to, to be honest with you, you know, I think it's just, it's kind of luck. I didn't really have to make a decision initially because I had, again, this big gap before I started my job. And so I had this gap of time and which allowed me to just experiment and do different things. So by the time I was supposed to start my job, I had made so much progress and I had validated so much that it was, I would have had a lot of what ifs if I didn't do it. And so, you know, so I think, but I, you know, I can see for different people, it might've been, you know, and I think this is what happened with Kalam. Like Kalam was not comfortable leaving his job just yet because he had already this, you know, huge salary and great position where I was about to start a new company. So like my, my, um, my situation was different. And I think it just made it easier at the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
I would, I kind of want to push back a little bit because you also had business school debt, right? So I know there's a lot of people listening who think, you know, I have debt. There's, yeah, exactly. It's like, I have debt. There's no way I can just not accept a job and a salary. You know, I still think you kind of leaned into an opportunity, but did that ever cross your mind or how did you really wrap your head around the debt that you had? Cause it's not, you know, it's quite a bit. Oh, I still have the debt and I still pay it every month. And so every month I'm like, oh gosh, I'm like, maybe I should have taken that corporate job. I would have been done by now. Yeah. So uh, yes, I definitely, I mean, it's a good point. I definitely did think about it. You know, I was just, I think it was just a matter of, I was so confident in this idea. I was so confident that this is something that people will use. Um, And, you know, it, it felt like a no brainer solution. Yeah, right yeah. to to a problem that everyone has, and I had done some work around, you know, like how big is this opportunity? You know, what is the market size? So I used my business school training a little bit to help me validate, like, okay, like this is, this can be a really huge, you know, business. And if I'm, I was, I was very young, you know, I was still like in my, you know, late twenties at the time, and I'm just like, I can just, if I, if it fails, it's okay. I'm delaying my debt by a few years. I'm not talking about, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing this for 20 years, right? So so it just felt like the risk of not um, pursuing it was low. The other thing I would say is like, and I think it's just, um, I have to say like, it's a privilege that I had the business school degree where I came from, you know, Wharton, of course, like the, it opens up so many doors, right? So I knew I can get a job after. Like, it was not a question for me. I had my a great resume and I knew I could get a job at any time. So I felt like my risks were lower, generally speaking, and it was worth pursuing. Um, and I, you know, and I think, I think that's something for people to consider, you know, you don't have to necessarily have the Ivy League degree or yeah. work at one of the top investment banks, but what is it in your own life that you feel confident about your even experience or uh, your background or your connections or whatever it is that, you know, you can lean on a little bit more. So I think it's important, like it doesn't have to be the same exact um, resume that will make you feel confident. It's whatever it is in your life that you feel confident about that you can lean on. Exactly. I mean, in my life, even though my dad has pushed me still to this day, he, he asked me if I will go back to business school. I'm like, dad, I'm older now. I'm doing my thing. But you know, for me, what made me feel comfortable, because I knew I always wanted to be an entrepreneur was just saving money. You know, even for my first job, having that safety net, I don't know if it's a psychological thing, but I knew at some point in my life, I will take that risk. And having that buffer, I think at least for me has really helped. And also knowing, you know, what's my worst case scenario, I can go back to my corporate job, I can go back to work with previous employers. And it's tough to not take a chance on something you're so excited about if you find that. So I love kind of hearing your story. And I hope that motivates more people to, you know, jump into an idea, whether it's on the side while they're keeping their job or when they're ready to go all in. So I know you guys have this idea. Kalam is now involved and is excited about it. And you decide to apply to Y Combinator, which is an accelerator. So I'd love to hear your perspective and motivation around that, because I do think that's a great first step for a lot of people who haven't started businesses necessarily and might come from a more corporate background? I mean, honestly, at the time, we didn't really know how big of a deal Y was. Yes. So, um, so I remember when I applied, I had just heard about it from one or two friends, you know, this was in New York back in the day when people 
it was New York was not about tech at the time. Like it, the tech scene was just kind of coming to be what like now it's become you know the second what second city in the U.S. for in terms of tech scene, the largest city in the U.S. in terms of tech scene. But at the time, you know, people were not really that excited about tech, and so. Um, I think it was one of my friends from business school and she was just like, hey, have you heard of this thing called Y Combinator? I'm like, no. She's like, you should apply. And I'm like, okay. You know, so I applied, you know, not knowing what, you know, what a big deal it was. And, you know, we didn't really realize how big a deal it was until we got invited for an interview. And, um, and when we started looking into it further, um, we were just like, wow, this is such a huge opportunity. Um, and I, it actually helped us decide, helped Colin sort of, helped Colin decide whether he should continue working at L'Oreal or not. We had had enough traction at that point. You know, it was, we went from, again, an idea testing on Craigslist to, I had built a very simple, really MVP, like a website with a form that you can list your, you list your furniture and then you know, there's a small, a simple checkout button, like very, very rudimentary website, but it still was enough for people to use. Um, and Colin was helping really support like financing it, especially uh, financing it or um, with the marketing, that's his background. Um, and so when we got invited for the interview, we had this like heart to heart conversation about, well, if we're gonna do this, we have to go all in. Um, we want this to be a multi-billion dollar business. You can't be moonlighting, you know, we need full-time um, help here. And so he had put in his notice before we even got accepted because we realized at that point that we're going to do this regardless whether we got into Y Combinator or not. Um, we believe in it that much. Y Combinator, of course, will give us a huge stepping stone, but is a validator, right? And so we're gonna do it anyway. And so he decided to quit before he even got inter- we got interviewed. So, which was like, you know, a huge pivotal, definitely moment for the company. Yeah, and I know, so you guys ended up getting accepted to Y Combinator. And one thing that really stands out, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, is how, you know, I think you and your co-founder knew how to get a few hundred customers, but you really weren't really sure how do we get to two, 500, thousand. And the one thing they really told you was really focus on your customer and be close to them, which sounds like it could be really complicated, but it's really interacting with them, right? So I'd love to hear what that meant because that's something I'm trying to do right now in my business. And I think really everybody should be one-on-one with their customers. You know, it's one of those things. And I remember like, I remember when they were telling like our group partners, they were telling us that and I'm like, what do you mean? I'm already doing, I'm customer service. I'm already doing talking to my customer. They're like, no, customer service is not talking to your customer. Like you need to see them. You need to be with them. You need to like see how they're living. And, you know, they kept on using this example of Airbnb. And I'm sure everyone has probably heard about it in the early days, Airbnb. And for those who haven't heard about it, Airbnb, uh, the founders used to go apartment to apartment, take photos for those for those uh, people who are host, hosting. And that was an opportunity for them to see how their customers are living and to build those relationships. And that really helped them define and refine their business. And so their, their whole, you know, the partners were like, well, why can't you just do the same thing? You know, and we're like, we tried, of course, we tried the photography part and nobody was interested. Um, and so we just kept in, it was definitely felt a little bit overwhelming in the beginning, but we threw a bunch of, like we 
you know, jotted a bunch of ideas down and just kind of went through them. Um, and one idea that ended up working for, actually a couple of ideas that ended up working for us, we launched this feature that actually did nothing, um, but it's it was called App Deco Verified, which essentially like the seller, th- we put a label in the seller's listing saying that this seller has been verified by App Deco. And, uh, and it's just a tag on the, like in every single listing says this has been verified, but it, the sellers were willing to let us go into their homes when, oh, you know, wow. they would apply to be verified and we were like, okay, great. Can we come to your home? And we would go and see their products, see who they are, you know, take some photos, but it was really more for us just to meet our customers that helped mm. a lot. Um, that's one example. A second example is, and is a lot more scrappy was, um, and I'll always go back to Craigslist because I feel like we've done, you know, I have to like Craigslist has been such Craig- an instrumental part of building our business. <laughs> so, you know, in the early days, one of the ways we were marketing the business, getting the first hundred customers, you know, was going through Craigslist and like sending emails to sellers like, hey, you know, you should, there's this new amazing website called App Deco. You should try to sell your furniture there. And this was during Y Combinator. And so one of the group partners at the time would ask us, you know, a very great question was, you know, how many people that you have from the people you email, how many of them actually end up listing their piece of furniture? So we were like, okay, if we email a hundred people around 10 of them list. So then his next question is like, what happens to the other 90 and we're like, well, they never respond. So we don't do anything about it. So his, he's like, well, then why don't you just list it for them? And we were just like, what do you mean list it for them? And he's like, well, just list it for them. And, you know, then figure it out, like figure out what to do after that. So, you know, we took his advice. It felt very weird to do, um, but it was actually the pivotal moment, another pivotal moment in our business Um we took that advice and we really just ran with it. So we listed the other 90, right? So this is because it helped us to get the supply. Supply drives demand. Um, so we started getting a lot more listings. Um, now people start buying these pieces, these listings. The question is, how do you actually fulfill the order? <laughs> yeah, I mean, is the seller aware that it got purchased? No. Oh, wow. No. Completely unbeknown to the seller. Um, they are not aware of anything. And the first thing we did, and I think I still have that email somewhere, you know, I, I remember sending an email, hi, I'm the co-founder of CNF Deco, and guess what? We sold your furniture. I mean, again, I'm emailing someone on Craigslist saying yeah. that I've sold your furniture unbeknown to you. That looks like a scam, right? Yes. yes. Sounds like a scam, looks like a scam. It was not a scam, but it felt like it. Um, so of course, nobody responded to that. Um, and so we we were like, okay, let's just pretend like we're normal buyers on Craigslist, email those people say, Hey, I love your couch. Like I'd love to come see it. Is it still available? They'll of course respond right away. Then we went, you know, one of us will go and, Oh, I love this couch. I want to buy it. And then we'll just give them cash. Yeah. Full price, no negotiation. Um, and then we're like, hey, you know, we have someone like, we'll help, we'll come pick it up in a couple of days. Are you okay with it? And everyone said yes. And they were just so delighted that there was no awkward interaction, but also it gave us an opportunity, of course, to again, be in their home and yeah. talk to them. And what during that conversation, you know, we'd be like, hey, you know, we're part of this company called App Deco. you know, one of our clients bought it. And we don't explain like, hey, we actually listed it on your behalf and, you know, kind of didn't go into that level of detail, but they got so excited about the level of professionalism. And it helped us learn, for example, that most people that were selling 
We're selling because they're like expecting a child or expecting a second child. They're mm-hmm. making look for baby and it helped us re- make so really refine our marketing and how we communicate with our customer. So like that experience was instrumental in terms of like how to meet our customers, how to, what to learn from them and made such a big, made it helped us make a lot of changes in terms of um, sort of the trajectory of the business. I love that. Cause I think it's so important. And to your point, and this is something, you know, in my business, we did a beta. So I was very hands-on with about 40 women, but as we're beginning to sell, you know, you do have to have unique opportunities to have them get on the phone or meet them because everybody's busy. You can send an email and say, Hey, you know, it's Yasmin. I'm the co-founder, you know, we're going to give you a free month or whatever. It doesn't work. So I love the uniqueness and, you know, the thoughts that went into how you really engage with the customer because people are busy. They get so many emails, another email from you wanting to hop on the phone. Like they don't have time for that. Right. So I think, and what were some of the things that didn't work? Cause I'm sure, you know, you mentioned there are many things that didn't work for you guys when you were trying to really get in the minds of the customers. Yeah. I mean, so just to kind of, on that point, um, you know, what we learned once things started working is you have to get, go to the customer where they are. Mm-hmm. They, they shouldn't be doing you a favor. You know, you're doing them, um, you're doing them a service that ends up helping you learn what you need to learn. That was the big lesson from the app deco verified example, where we added this label, you know, it did help a little bit, right. It helped them get their listing promoted or from us talking to them. And like, now we help them sell this piece of furniture. Um, it's so instrumental. So whenever you're thinking, you know, for anyone who's listening about how to talk to your customers, think about how can you actually help them achieve whatever they need in their own, in their way, and how could it service you too? Um, it can't be a favor that they're doing you. So to pick to for them, quote unquote, to pick for you to pick their brain. I think that's that's a lot of that's one of the things that we had initially done that didn't work. Like you know, reaching out, sending a survey, and yeah. like, hey, we would love to re, you know talk to you and quote unquote, not actually say pick your brain, but you know the notion yeah. of picking your brain that definitely didn't work. I'd mentioned the photography piece, same thing. You know, hey, we would love to photograph your furniture for you. And, you know, it didn't work and it didn't work because most people were moving and their apartments were a mess. So the last thing they wanted was for someone to go photograph their furniture, (laughs) you know, or like take photos of their space. So, you know, that application, it worked for Airbnb, but it didn't work for us. There's so many of those examples that we've tried and a lot of them didn't work, but you know, the, the lesson was just keep trying, keep trying different things. And, you know, and even whatever idea you work, what we were working on. So sure, the photos didn't work, but then we're like, okay, well, what about, what about, you know, making it about what they care about? They want to sell their product faster. Mm-hmm. So what about, you know, we still went and took photos, but instead of saying, hey, we just want to take photos for the sake of photos, hey, we're going to take photos of your pieces and verify that your listings are legit because it's going to help you sell faster everybody signed up to that. So like, again, refining the same idea and keep iterating until you figure out something that sticks. Yeah. I love that. I mean, the biggest takeaways is just always continue to add value with their, your customer, meet them where they're at and just iterate, iterate, iterate. One idea doesn't work, try a million others. And I think I constantly try to remind myself of that is like, you're not going to know the right way to do things. You just have to try a bunch of stuff. And you know, it always feels good to add value to your customer, right? It's like, that's why the, the broader aspect of business and, you know, bringing your mission to life. So I love to hear that. So, you know, one thing that I'm curious about, so, you know, you're in this accelerator program, you guys had 
some traction before. How did you really build that early awareness with AppDeco? I mean, did it come through word of mouth? Was it through a partnership or what did that early, those early days look like for you? Again, the theme is going back to Craigslist. I love <laughs> so, this. So, you know, I had already told the story about how we got listings from Craigslist. We emailed people, we copied listings from Craigslist, but then on the, to get the quote unquote, what you call demand in the marketplace, which is the buyer side, we would advertise again, we would take those listings and say with delivery and put it back on Craigslist. That really helped us get, you know, our first 100, 200, 400, 500 customers. Then we started experimenting with, um, you know, digital marketing. So Facebook and Instagram and um, Google ads. And we tried so many things. And actually Facebook and Instagram did not work for us in the beginning at all. They now work really well. But when we had, we ended up stopping, stopped using them because we felt like we're spending so much money and we're not getting a lot out of it. But really what was instrumental was in those early days was everyone who used the platform, we wanted to make sure they had such an amazing experience that they told all their friends about it. And what happened was one person has an incredible experience. They tell five or 10 of their friends, those, you know, maybe a few of those people will end up using it. Then they tell five or 10 of their friends. And so we just grew, you know, that virality factor was so huge because we were delighting people in a way that they didn't even think it's possible with moving, you know, when you're moving and dealing with the stress of moving. And that was so instrumental for our early growth. Yeah, the organic growth. And then in those early days, did you have any promotions in terms of referrals or was it just purely organic and word of mouth? Yeah, we did the referral program. We did referral program and we saw people weren't using it um, as yeah. much. It was just, you know, when people love a service, they will refer people anyway. Yeah. Right. And so, and that was the learning. So the referral program worked for some companies for us, we still haven't figured out how to make it work. It's yeah. something that we'll all continue to refine and figure out, but it hasn't really worked for us, but you know, it's still a big, I mean, even to this day, I think 40 or 50% of our, um, of our sort of new customers come from word of mouth. It's such a big aspect of our business. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I mean, we're still early, but just hearing some of our early customers saying, I love this. I'm going to share with all my friends. I'm like, that's so kind of you. Thank you. And just to your point, like making sure they have the best experience and delighting them through every aspect of it, you know? So I love hearing that because you don't need to spend money for word of mouth. And people think like, how do I create the demand? If you do a great product and deliver a good service, I mean, it will slowly grow. Absolutely. And it doesn't, it's not even necessarily slowly, right? Like, but it will grow. Um, and it's so, I think people, a lot of people overlook this. They, they think that you, the first thing you need to do is go spend money somewhere. And it's not about paying for customers. And I think that's one of the pitfalls actually, um, of a lot of startups that end up failing is, you know, they're dumping a lot of money where you're just buying customers literally, but they're never coming back to you. Um, and that's because your underlying service is not necessarily where it needs to be or offering or the product itself is what it needs to be. So, you know, in the early days, it's so important to figure out exactly what will make people tell everyone. And then that's, that's, that's the pointer for you to be like, okay, well, this actually now works. Maybe I should start investing in sort of more, you know, paid acquisition channels. Yes. I love that. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, one thing you touched upon is, and you've talked a lot this, about this in a lot of your interviews, is just how focused you are on profitability and creating a sustainable business, which really resonates with me. And I know you guys raise a little bit of money, a series A round. So I'd love to hear, you know, what was the inspiration for you to raise money and kind of talk through, you know, why it's so important for you to focus on profitability, even from the early days when you're a growing business? Um, so why we raised money, you know, 
let me just backtrack. So when, before Y Combinator, I didn't even realize this. I didn't know anything about this venture world. Mind you, I come from, you know, I went to business school at Wharton, right? So like, you think <laughs> if anyone will know anything, it should be someone who's come graduating from Wharton business school. But I did, I was not really that privy to the venture world and how startups are funded. I was just, was not in that world and wasn't aware of it. So going into Y Combinator just opened up our eyes to all the possibilities and opportunities. And we realized at that point that, you know, it'll take money to make it a big business. This is not something that, you know, we were self-funded until Y Combinator. Uh, we bootstrapped it completely. We paid for everything ourselves. Um, and, you know, we had made the cognizant decision that, um, we are going, we want to be a multi multi-billion dollar business. And so we would need external investor money, venture capital money to do that. Um, so a high growth, fast growing company, but that's not the only way to build a business, right? And I think a lot of people just think that, oh, well, venture capital, because it's, it's just like you read so much about it in the news, this is the only way you can build your business. Um, and so, you know, out of Y Combinator, we tried to raise around, we just had honestly just a lot of difficulties in the early days and not because we didn't have traction. So what, what was it? What, what made it difficult for you in those early days, would you say? You know, a few different things. Um, I think, I mean, listen, the stats, the stats are the stats, right? So who are we kidding if we don't address it, right? So yeah. there's not a lot of women. What, what percentage of funding goes to women? I think it's like, a, I think it's like 2%. And then what women of color of are like, I don't women. even want to know. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's like, Less point than like 0.1. Yeah. No, it's, it's even 0. 0.0 something. Oh 0.037. It's, it's such a minuscule number that, and I'm not calling, you know, VCs are racist or anything like that, but, you know, most VCs invest in people and they invest and it's pattern matching, right? So they think that the founder needs to probably like, it's kind of like inherent bias, right? So like, oh, like, you look a certain way and you have a little bit of an accent and your background is a little bit non-traditional. There's no way you can be successful. It's just pattern matching. So I think a lot of it is that uh, we didn't know at the time. I honestly had no clue. And, you know, we were just getting introduced to that. Um, and, you know, we, we were one of the fastest growing companies out of Y Combinator. Um, and, you know, we were expecting a lot of interest and Y Combinator was expecting a lot of interest, but, uh, but it didn't, it didn't materialize, which is okay. We ended up raising a small round, a small seed round, um, and it helped us grow our business and really figure out the fundamentals and continue to focus um, on our delivering on this amazing customer experience. The other thing I'd say is we did have a competitor also at the same time out of Y Combinator in our same batch. Oh, that was really? Something similar, just solving the problem in a different way, but addressing the same market. Um, they're a consignment model. We were, um, we're a peer-to-peer, -peer, so we don't warehouse anything. And, you know, they had all the relationships they had raised before the YC was over before demo day. So when we started raising, every investor had told us, oh, well, we already spoken to this other company and either we're investing, they either said we're investing in them already or we're not interested in the space. So it really limited the pool. Um, and, you know, so that really just didn't help. And ultimately that company ended up raising a lot more money very quickly, over 25 million, I think over in a couple of years. Wow. And then they shut down. Um, and, you know, so for us, because we've had those challenges and we were always compared to them, we came out of the same Y Combinator batch. 
Um, we had initially, of course, the same investor, which is Y Combinator. Um, unfortunately, we just kept on getting compared to them. Although our businesses were different, very different, our models were different, our unit economics were different, our sales sales numbers are different. Uh, but it forced us to just focus on the things we can control. And it's something that I talk about a lot. It helped us really uh, make sure that we continue delivering this amazing experience for our customers, um, grow responsibly, always focus on our unit economics because we wanted to make sure that we are building a business that will last the test of time. Um, so ultimately, you know, of course, the, you know, at the time I was, we were freaking out, but ultimately it's kind of a blessing in disguise. Right. It, it helped us really focus on the important things from day one. Absolutely. And, you know, it's unfortunate that they went out of business, but I think a lot of people equate success to how much money you raise, how much press you have, you know, some of the glitzy, glamorous stuff when it's like, if you look behind the scenes and see how they're building the business, there's so much that can be said. And, you know, when you were getting those rejections, I'm sure it wasn't easy, especially being in Silicon Valley where, you know, I've have I've had friends who've raised money there. It's like everybody is one-upping each other and is raising money. I mean, did you ever question the success of the business then when you were getting all those rejections? I mean, how did you deal with your mental health and stability at the time? Oh, yeah. in the beginning, it was very hard to deal with the, the rejections. It's the, our first time ever just getting rejected left and right oh. in our entire careers. Um, um, but, you know, we spoke to a couple of people like, we you know, even with the partners within Y Combinator, and we have such a strong support from Y Combinator from the early, from, from, since the, from the beginning. Um, and they really helped us advise, advise us around, you know, investors at the end of the day are, you're going to get a bunch of no's before you get a yes and just focus on refining your pitch and focus on the things like really like focus on the things you can control. And it's something that we've sort of relived by till this day. It's okay. Well, they said, no, like what, you know, where did they get stuck? Like, what is the issue that they didn't really understand? Like let's refine our pitch or let's, you know, let's try to get a stronger introduction from someone different or whatever it is. We kept on just, again, same theme of iterating, but it mentally was very, very hard. And it was hard for a few years um, and now I would say, like I've learned through the years is, you know, startups can are hard, right? Like there's a lot of ups and downs and the highs can be very high and the lows can be very, very low. And one of the things that, you know, we still do to this day is like always remind ourselves to stay level headed. Um, and because you can't have the highs be too high and the lows be yeah. too low. Um, and in the beginning, we weren't doing that. So it was affecting us emotionally so much. But when you stay level-headed, what ends up happening is like you're always making just the best decisions for your business. So even when we have signed the most amazing contract or just had the you know, like you know the most amazing sale day, it's we're not like getting oh my god this is the most amazing thing like we're so excited about it. Um, we're always trying to stay level-headed because you you know you want to just make sure that you're always making the right decision long term. Yeah, no, I love that. It's a, it's a great way to think about it. And it sounds cliche that the highs feel really highs and the lows feel really lows, but it's true. So if you can find a way to like neutralize your life, right. And not be too excited, but be grateful still. Right. But be level-headed. You know, that's something I try to practice quite a bit. I think that's a really good recommendation. Well, I want to be mindful of our time and I'd love to ask you one question where we love to ask all of our guests is, you know, what are you most proud of that? A lot of people may not know about you, Raham. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, a lot of different things. So I would say, you know, for the for the business perspective, I'm just I'm really proud of what we've been able to achieve, um, especially with so little funding. Like that's something a testament to our team, testament to um, how 
Craigslist. Yeah. <laughs> I know, exactly. Thank you, Craigslist. <laughs> exactly. You know, a testament to, you know, we just never took no for an answer. I'm proud of also the partnerships that my co-founder and I have. We've definitely had a lot of differences, but we were always able to come together and, you know, trust each other's decisions. And I think that's something that's also, you know, very important to recognize, like having co-founders and like making sure that you trust the person that you're partnering with. It's, it's really like a marriage. Um, yeah. So that's something that I'm proud of. Um, you know, I mean, even in the in the personal side of things, I mean, my family. I'm proud that my family is finally able to understand what I'm doing. <laughs> so, it's big. So in the beginning, you know, I had this cushy job at Goldman, and you know making a lot of money for someone who was very too much money for someone that young, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nobody should be getting paid that much money when you're just graduating out of college. I know. But, I joke that I made the most money at that time. And I was like, yeah, that should not be happening. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, so my parents um, in the beginning, when I started the business, it's like, wait, you just went and spent all this money in business school. And now you're going to start a company instead of going back to some cushy job. Um, but I'm proud that they're now fully understanding and understanding of what we're doing, we're looking to build and, um, and supportive. Oh, that's so beautiful, Rayhan. Well, thank you for joining us today and sharing your story. I can't wait for our listeners to learn more about you. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was amazing to share the story and uh, I love talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.